Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got a fun one for you talking about the ancient tool known as the Enneagram. We talked a little bit about this with Richard Rohr a couple months ago when we were in Albuquerque and I've got some friends who got to know Suzanne and they said she's great. She's someone who studied under Richard Rohr and she lives in Texas. So it was a great joy to make the trip down to actually her house and to get to meet her and her husband and uh, talk a little bit about the Enneagram, which I think you're going to enjoy. Now, let me tell you about one thing we've got coming up. We're going to be doing a mailbag podcast. Probably uh, the week of July 20th is when we will put that out. So you've got one more week to send in your questions, uh, things about the authors, maybe uh, themes that have come up, maybe... Uh, something that uh, you find to be quite newsworthy. And so we've had some good questions come in. I want to give you another week or so to get your questions to come in. So send those over to me, email them, or hit me up on the old Facebook page, Newsworthy with Norisworthy on Facebook, and uh, we'll get your questions on the show. And that's it. That's all we got for you today. So get ready for some fun. Here we are talking Enneagram with Suzanne Stabile. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we're coming to you from Richardson, Texas, with my guest, Suzanne Stabile. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, you do know Richardson, you might not know this, but Richardson, Texas has a celebrity. In 1968, the student body president of Richardson High School was one Larry Norsworthy, my dad. Really? Yeah, he's from Richardson. Wow, that's good. You guys don't know each other, of course. No, probably about the same age, though. Possibly. Yeah, sure. I'm not going to ask your age. That'd be really awkward. I'll tell you. I'm 64. He's older than you. Oh, good. But you guys can still be friends. Okay. Now, I heard one thing about you that I found to be very interesting. Now, it might not be true, but it's interesting. You were the first basketball coach at SMU? I was the first women's basketball coach after Title IX. Really? Yep. So that's... When was that? Mid-70s. Okay. So if I call you coach during this podcast, is that okay? Sure. Because I might do that. Okay. I might respond like a coach. Uh-oh. How would that be? We'll see if you call me coach, and then I'll let you know. <laughs> the The podcast is entitled Newsworthy with Norsworthy because my high school football coach used to come up to me in the weight room and say, Newsworthy? Nor- or he would say, Norsworthy, you keep working hard, son, and one day you'll be newsworthy. Oh, there you go. That's the whole podcast is based on my, my high school football coach. Oh, that's good. I never became newsworthy with football, though. Well, that's all right. So we're here, though. You are um, an Enneagram guru, master, teacher, expert. Yes. Coach? Yes. I'm what, all that. What, what title do you prefer? Teacher? Yes. Okay. Now, you were trained under our best friend, Richard Rohr. He is surely one of my best friends. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Yeah. He's how did, a good, good man. Tell me, how did you get to know Richard? We called him. I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Um, my husband, Joe, is a former Catholic priest, and we knew that we really needed some help with some spiritual direction, and... Um, so he just called him one day, and Richard answered his phone at his house and said, this is Richard. Really? And Joe talked to him about who we were and told him we'd like to come see him, and he said, come on. That's outstanding. Well, first of all, I forgot to say, we have a studio audience today. We your, do. Your husband's sitting right next to he you. He is. He's the best part of me by far. Your director, Meredith, is here. She's the second best part of everything we do. Uh-huh. And my good friend, Heather Hodges. And my good friend, Heather Hodges. So we've got a studio audience today. We do. 
So we, we don't need to play up to the crowd. But going back to your husband, Joe called Richard. He answered the phone. I had to go through like 17 people to contact Richard the first time I met, talked to him. Well, this was a long time ago. Oh, okay. I was going to feel bad about myself. Yeah, don't. No. Feel good about yourself because you got through to Richard. I did. And he spent time with you. Yes. Yes. Richard's outstanding. He is. Big fan of Richard. So you reached out to him and said you need some help with something. Right. And was it about the Enneagram? No, we reached out just for spiritual direction. And he agreed to meet with us. We were trying to make a lot of decisions about our past and about Joe's past as a Catholic priest and how we were going to do our life moving forward once we were married. And um, I had three children, so Joe adopted my three children. We had a fourth, and we were building a life together and knew that we needed somebody who was stronger than we were to help lead us. Help you go forward. Now, I'm not an expert on Catholicism, but usually I don't think priests get married. Well, yeah, you can't be No, you don't do that. No, no. So Joe left the priesthood. Did you make Joe choose Catholicism or you? Is that what happened? No, that's the story he tells. (laughs) (laughs) What happened is he decided to leave the priesthood, and then he asked me out on a date. Could that be confirmed if we had a time machine? Is that the exact chronology that really happened? That's how it really happened. Okay, good. So Okay, so you guys reach out to Richard, get to know him. How does the Enneagram get introduced to you? Well, I'd already read some about the Enneagram, but not a ton. And I'd read his book. So after we had met with him a couple of times, I told him that I found it to be very interesting and that I was really interested. And um, in in, um, coming conversations about that, he said to me one day that he thought that I was uh, particularly suited for the Enneagram. Really? And that he would encourage me to study for five years without teaching it or talking about it. What does it mean to be particularly suited for the Enneagram? Um, I intuitively know it. So I have all the years, I've been teaching for 20 years, but in the 20 years I've always found that I have answers that I didn't know I had until somebody asked me the question. Are you, are you like a mind reader or something? No, but I'm very intuitive. So if I ask you right now to tell me what I'm thinking, could you tell me that? No. No, that's different? Right. Okay, okay. So you intuitively <laughs> so you intuitively have this sense for the Enneagram. I, I will tell you from the smile on your face, I don't want to know what you're thinking right oh, now. Ouch, that hurts. Well, I'm just saying. No, that's not very nice. It is nice. It's it is? very curious. Okay, it's curious. All right, we'll come back to that. Okay. Uh, Richard had... Okay, we'll come back to that. Okay. So y- you you go there. He says you could be a you could be a teacher. This could right. be your thing. Right. So you he says five years of just studying it. Right. Before you teach or talk about it or talk about it. Yep. So y- does Joe know you're studying? He Can- knew, and I talked to him some, but not much. Mm-hmm. But I didn't talk to anybody else. And you know, nobody on the planet could have gotten me to do that except. When Father Richard Rohr <laughs> says, I think you should just study for five years and not talk about it, I said, okay. And so I did. Did you ever feel like, you know, you're at a restaurant and you, the waitress comes out and she says something to you and you're like, ah, I can tell you you're a number three right now. And you wanted to like tell her something about herself. But you Early keep- on, I, th- I thought that. Early on, I thought I knew people's numbers, but I was wrong about that frequently. Really? Yeah. D- do you know now? Not usually. Your Enneagram number is determined by your motivation for your behavior, not by your behavior. Mm-hmm. 
So all these people who are walking around assigning numbers to other people who have a little bit of Enneagram wisdom on board mm-hmm. are wrong about half the time. Well, see, when I was out in Albuquerque last time, I asked Richard this, and he said, yeah, I think I know what number you are. Yeah. And I thought I was one number, and he said, no, I think you're the other number. And do you want to guess who was right? Uh, no. Richard was right. <laughs> was of course he? he was right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But you, do you do that now? Like after having years of experience with it? I do it after I've been with people for a while, but I wouldn't do it with a waitress at okay. a restaurant. But like someone who's interviewing you, after a few minutes, you would have a diagnosis of what number he or she might hypothetically be? No, okay. I just don't do that. Okay, good. Okay, well, let's, okay, we've talked about the Enneagram, we've talked about your introduction to it, but for someone who has not themselves had an introduction to the Enneagram, where do you begin? Where, like, how do you say this is what the Enneagram is? I've been working really hard on an elevator speech for the last 20 years. Uh-huh. And unless I get stuck between two floors, I don't have one. <laughs> but I would just say this. There are nine ways of seeing and nine ways of processing what we see. Okay. And when you put all that together, you end up with nine different personalities. And everybody I've ever met fits in one of the nine. And the Enneagram lays that out for us in ways that are uh, accessible to everybody. So there is no education requirement. There's no socioeconomic requirement. There's no... um, language requirement i got to teach with richard in europe and we taught people from uh 21 different countries who spoke 17 different languages and they all got it so it's a great equalizer in many ways in terms of how we can understand our differences Mm -hmm. so if you're going to compare it to other personality profiles like uh, in the world of psychology the mmpi2 or the, what is it, 16PF, or the more popular level, like Myers-Briggs. Why the Enneagram over, say, those personality profiles? Well, I think they all have value. But the thing the Enneagram offers that the others don't is that you can do something with what you learn. What do you mean? Well, I'm an ENFJ on Myers-Briggs. Okay. And um, I'm always going to be an E. Uh, I've tried to be a little more introverted it's not going well but I am a two on the Enneagram and I've been working on that two-ness okay for 23 years and I still have work to do so those other systems are fairly static and the Enneagram's not static hmm. there's always movement there's always in work the to Enneagram. do yeah so I, I listened to your your tapes about uh, I forget the title. People who listen to the show know I'm terrible with titles, but you had a title for these CDs, something about like knowing your number. Yeah. Okay. And you introduced the material and said it's about really getting to know your true self. Right. You know, that's Merton did the true self stuff. Right. Becker talks about the, uh, what is it? The lie? The, what is his line? The, um, something lie. Anyway, what, but, but ultimately like what the Enneagram does is saying like, this is what your sin is. Is that fair to say? Well, I would say that a little differently. Uh, Tell me the right way to say it, though. I would say it this way. I really spend my time teaching people who they're not. Okay. Because your personality is not who you are. It's all of the behavior that you have added to Mm -hmm. who you are in order to make your way in the world. So um, if we get back to essence, back to who we were, Richard's language is 
the face you had in the womb. Hmm. Merton's language is true self. There's a lot of language around that. I'm uh, currently doing some work with Ian Cron, and the language that Hmm. we're using is your pretend self. Yeah. That's really what I teach to, because until you're aware of that, you can't allow it to fall away so you can get back to essence. Gotcha. So essentially it helps you make your way in the world. Gotcha. So explain to me the difference between my personality and my behaviors, because it seems like I am what I do, but how, how do I learn to see those as two different things? Well, I I don't know if there's a difference so much in personality and behavior as there is a difference between personality and true self. Okay. So if we said your personality is your false self and your true self is who you were before you did anything wrong and before you did anything right, Mm -hmm. then essentially if we think about a child, Mm -hmm. any of my six grandchildren who are trying to learn to make their way in the world. Mm-hmm. They have to adapt themselves over and over and over in order to not get in trouble at school and not get in trouble at home. And yeah. all of those adaptations add personality. Okay. So I have a grandson who I think might be a seven on the Enneagram. And he doesn't want to adapt much. He just wants to play. And he wants to play a lot. Mm-hmm. But there are places he can't play. So when we say you can't do that here, or when his mom says you can't do that there, then he has to add a layer of personality in Hmm. order to be able to meet the criteria for being at the party, in the room, in the classroom, all those things. Mm -hmm. So we've all done a lifetime of that. Hmm. But ultimately it goes back to like, what's your motivation? Like that's what's the Enneagram's trying to get to. Right. right, So you, you, you wade through all the behaviors, the things you've had to do right. and get back to the, ultimately the essence of like what motivates you. Right. And that's, that's where you go. So an example of that for me as a two is I just really want you to like me. I do like you. Good. Then I've accomplished that. Good. But I want everybody to like me. And so I want everybody to like me and I want everybody to want me. So a lot of my behavior has to do with being whoever they will like or want. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time you're 64, that gets a little old. Yeah. And so you get too tired to try to please everybody, mm-hmm. and you learn that you have to allow some of that behavior to fall away. And that's that process of getting to know your true self. That's right. Th- that, that's what the Enneagram does. It helps you see that. That's right. Okay, so when I went out to, to see uh, Roar a couple months ago, I thought I was a three. I read his book, and his suggestion is you don't take a diagnostic tool, but you've got to find where you feel at home. Right. Is that the same prescription you have absolutely as someone who's been trained under him I assume very similar so at first I was reading that and and Heather's husband Wade he's a three a lot of my preacher friends I know they're threes they're all lying jerks that just pretend to be something so you never know if they're really your friend or not I just wow no I'm just I'm just saying as a Enneagram student myself I'm learning that oh but I'm not judgmental of them I accept them for who they are as three. Yeah, it's three, because I thought I was a three. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I thought I was a three. I talked to Richard, and he says, no, I think you're probably more a seven. Yeah, that's what I think. See? That, and so I emailed with him afterwards because he said it on the podcast. And I was like, I, I thought I'm a three, seven. I think he's 100% right. Email back and forth. Where do you live? Your head and your heart. That was his question. And uh, oof, I try to stay away from feelings. So definitely. That's it. Yeah. So I'm a seven. And so one of the things that I'm realizing as a seven, and you can correct me when I am wrong about this, but I feel like as a seven, I run away from pain. Like that's part of the seven's motivation. You always want to have fun. Sure. And so for me, like the exploratory work I'm trying to do is what do I want to run from and how do I learn to sit in that? 
Right. And so that's what I feel like. And I just got a thumbs up from your husband. Way to go. Um, But so that's like how the Enneagram helps me. Like I'm finding my motivations. I don't want to feel this pain. But like the spiritual exercise for me is, no, let me sit in this. What am I afraid of? What don't I want to feel? What am I? And so that's how the Enneagram works. Is that what kind of this, the, the work you can do when you learn what your number is, is sure. all about? So my way of talking about that would be to say that everybody needs a full range of emotions and sevens live with a half range. So in order for you to parent well, in order for you to keep your wife happy, in order for you to minister well, you need to be able to have a full range of emotion. Hmm. And you have, as sevens, you intuitively have more defense mechanisms than the rest of us do. Thank so you. you have all this magic that you use to prevent yourself from having to deal with what you probably call the darker side, but what some numbers on the Enneagram would call the richer side of life Ooh. or the more textured side of life. Really? Yeah. Okay. The first time I went to a therapist, I think I've told the story before in my podcast, but um, I, I went to a therapist and I'm talking to him first session and he goes, Luke, I hear you talk a lot about how you think about something, but you've never talked about how you feel and he says, maybe you should think about like talking to, me, talking to me or maybe just worrying about how you feel about something. And my response was, hmm, that's a good idea. I'll think about it. There you go. <laughs> that's perfect. That's just perfect. Or you'll feel happy about it, but not sad. Mm-hmm. So I'm fixing to do an advanced workshop uh, this summer that has to do with Enneagram and grieving. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm doing it is primarily for the sevens in my life. Because we don't want to... We don't want to grieve. Well, culturally, none of us know how to grieve, but you have uh, particular protection from grieving. Mm -hmm. I've had three, seven males of varying ages in my life in the last year who have had an incredibly hard time because they have never grieved anything. And they finally came up on something that they couldn't reframe. Hmm. And when they had to grieve it, it caused an enormous amount of disconnect in their lives. And so what this tool does, it gives you a a way to understand how you experience the world. It helps you understand, like for me, like I don't want to experience grief. And so for me, like this spiritual exercise to become a mature seven is to learn to, to, to deal with that. That's part of it. The Enneagram has lots of threes in it. So an awful lot of what we're talking about has to do with the three central intelligences, which are thinking, feeling, and doing. Okay. And in the Enneagram wisdom, you're uh, dominant in one, thinking, feeling, or doing. One supports the dominant, and one is repressed. Okay. So uh, the balance for you and me is I'm feeling dominant as a two, but you're feeling repressed as a seven. So in order for us to have a long-term friendship, we have to meet somewhere there. I'm thinking repressed, so I got to... Really what does that mean? On. To I, I get the feeling repressed. That makes a whole lot of sense to yeah. me. What does the thinking repressed mean? Well, the three numbers that are thinking repressed are ones and twos and sixes. Oh, that's good. My wife's a one. So that's wonderful. So um, ones think they think all the time uh-huh. because ones have this special uh, voice that um, keeps them company. Mm-hmm. And it's very critical and it's really hard on them. So they have this inner dialogue that goes between mm-hmm. them and their voices and they believe that's thinking. So when I first say ones are thinking repressed, they all kind of fold up and say, I think all the time. And I say, man, those conversations with the voices that you hear that nobody else hears is not productive thinking. Mm-hmm. So sixes are afraid. They, that's their core issue is fear. Mm-hmm. 
and they manage their fear with worst case scenario planning so they plan for the worst thing that could ever happen and then they stay vigilant and prepared to deal with it but that's not productive thinking mm-hmm. twos believe that they think too like i'm fairly bright and i've accomplished a good bit and i feel like i'm a pretty good thinker but 90 percent of my thinking is about relationships really and that's not productive either so what is the type of thinking that that is productive well, for me, as a, for me and all twos, I have to work on um, thinking about concepts. So I have to read nonfiction, but not memoirs, so that I'm really challenging the way I see the world and the way I see the world in relationship to myself. Because as twos, we observe the world, but we just want to help everybody else. Mm-hmm. So if I read a book and it has some really challenging stuff in it, then I usually write out in the column who I think that would be good for. Really? Yeah, but it's very seldom me. <laughs> so I have to go back and read and look at what I need to do. For you? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so you said the ones. I'm very certain my wife is a one. My wife thinks she is a one. Uh, okay. Rory even said he thinks my oldest daughter is a one because as a six-year-old, she wakes us up for to take her to school. And there you go. she's more responsible than me. Um but I would say she might be a three, two, also. Possibly? Yeah, maybe. I could, I could let me think about that. That's a good place to I'm not going to feel about that. I'm going to think about it. Okay, so uh, my wife last night, she's a neonatal ICU nurse. Okay. And so very precise. She's definitely perfectionist type, which works out well like in life for a lot of things. Obviously, when you're taking care of sick babies that weigh two pounds, it's good to be a perfectionist. Sure. Obviously, when she was picking out a husband, it was great that she was a perfectionist. Wow. I'm just saying like... Yeah, in, she in, just <laughs> picked the perfect one. <laughs> but, Got it. Okay, so she comes home from working you know, a 12, 13-hour day. And then she, I, she, she had a friend make a table. And so I, I brought it home that day. And she does laundry. She... she I cleaned up the kitchen before she got home, but she re-cleaned, re-cleaned it yeah. like your husband does. Yeah. And then she decides to stain the table yeah. till 10 o'clock at night. Sure. Because that's, she gets energy from perfecting things. Right. And um, I, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. But so how does it, this work with relationships? Because obviously you and your husband are different numbers. Right. Uh, Heather and her husband I know are different numbers. I don't know Meredith or her husband's They're number. They're different numbers. I would assume so. Like that's how it works. So how do you... How do you make that work? How does the Enneagram help with marriages? Uh, okay. Um, so I want you to imagine, what's your wife's name? Lindsay. All right, let's talk about Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. I want you to imagine Lindsay having this voice in her head that criticizes almost everything she does. And what Lindsay has learned intuitively without the Enneagram, although it helps once you know it, is that if she's perfecting something, if she's busy and if she's perfecting something, then the voice kind of stands down Mm -hmm. and she feels like she's doing a good thing. So a a good example to use Richard is one of Richard's long time ways of talking about his oneness is to say this, when the world, when I think the world is going to hell, I clean my bathroom. And that's because Richard can get his bathroom perfectly clean. Mm Mm-hmm. And then something that is within his or Lindsay's control is perfected, Hmm. which gives them a little bit of breathing room. So perfection is probably not terribly important to you in terms of details and uh, uh, other than your work, perhaps. And so um, if you don't understand that, then when Lindsay comes home and recleans the kitchen, 
you could, if you were any number other than a seven, take that as criticism. Wait, hold on. Why, why would I not take well, that? Because you don't care. <laughs> you just don't care. But if you were a, if you were a different number, like if you were a two, you would care. I do care, Lindsay. I care about you. He doesn't care about the kitchen. Though, <laughs> no, Lindsay. I don't. No. So for Joe and I, uh, we're a lot alike and we're very different. He's a nine and I'm a two. So we're both other referenced. We neither one like conflict. And we're both pretty committed to trying to um, make the parts of the world that we're responsible for or that we're responsible to better than we left it. Okay. Josie's two sides to everything. As a nine As mediator. A nine, yeah. Always. I don't see two sides to everything. I see my side or the strongest side sometimes, hmm. but I don't always see both sides. So we um, had hoped we could raise our children living in rural Texas, and that didn't work out for us because we're too liberal and one of us is way too verbal. And so one of us was getting the other one in trouble a lot. And uh, are we, we allowed had, to guess who the two yeah, verbal one guess. that yeah. was? Getting, no. Yeah. So, um, but we we were trying to live in a rural community, and any time we took our kids out to eat, we went to the big city nearby. The one that I'm thinking of right now was Sherman, which is not exactly <laughs> no. a towering city. No. And so imagine us with four little kids piling in our blue Astro van, driving to Sherman mm -hmm. for dinner. So we did this pretend vote about where we would eat. And it was pretend because I was going to go along with the children because I want them to think that I'm the most loving, best mom on the planet. Yeah, you're helping them. Right. Joe goes along with the children so that there's no conflict with the children. He's mediating. Yeah. So we're deciding where to go. Joe wants barbecue always. It's a good choice. Yeah. yeah. I don't want pizza, but we're going to go have pizza. Well, because nines merge, by the time we get to the pizza place, Joe wants pizza too. That's nice of him. But I still want fried shrimp, and I'm having pizza instead. So Joe merges, but I have to adapt. Hmm. And there's very different energy there. Explain that to me. Well, by the time we get there, Joe knows what kind of pizza he's going to have, and he's happy with pizza. And I'm regretting that I'm not having fried shrimp, but I'm going to have pizza in order for the children to think I'm just the coolest mom. Huh. Okay, we're not judging a number over a, a, another number, but it seems like as a nine, he's going to meet it. He's going to do whatever's best for everyone. I'm thinking, where's the most fun going to happen, and that's right. where I want to go. Right. It seems like a number nine is a whole lot better person than me. I mean, let's be honest. You want someone who's like gets along with everyone, not just what's most fun for them. In the Enneagram, the best part of you is also the worst part of you. Uh-oh. So uh, the best part of nines is that they see two sides to everything. Mm -hmm. But that's also the worst part about nines. Because if you're parenting. Yeah. Yeah. There's one ex tiny example. Yeah. But there's also the reality that you have to choose sometimes. Sometimes one thing is better than the other. Mm -hmm. And you have to risk the conflict that would go with choosing that one thing. Hmm. Twos get lost in trying to please everybody and ultimately don't even know what would please them. And so they sacrifice themselves so much. That not... they become martyrs, which is very tiring. Hmm. And it probably hurts the ones around them the most because you're out there pleasing everyone and you're not being able to do any self-care. Fair? 
Fair. Okay. Self-care is very hard for twos. Hmm. So I know you've done, um, I think you've done something at Otter Creek with Josh Graves, a right. friend of mine. So you went up there and worked with the elders, the lead uh, staff. Staff. And mm-hmm. so you worked through kind of helping them see what number they are. Right. And then how that works in their staff environment. Right. Talk to me like the benefit of how that helps churches. I would assume it's very similar to families. Um, okay. Before I do that, I want to tell you a brief story. Okay. I have a friend whose name is Patsy who teaches visually impaired children. Okay. Severely visually impaired. And a couple of years ago, an optician here in Dallas told her that he could have glasses made for the parents of each of these 19 children that would show the parents exactly what their children can and cannot see. Patsy welcomed that. Mm. And on the evening when the parents came and tried on those glasses, everybody cried. The parents cried. The children cried. They had no idea. about the limitations of how their children were able to see. The Enneagram is about nine different ways of seeing. And when you and I look at something, we don't see the same thing. You see it from your perspective as a seven, and I see it from my perspective as a two. And one of the reasons that we lack compassion is because we don't understand that we see so differently. Hmm. So my mystical, magical dream that will never come true would be to have nine pairs of glasses that people could try on so that they could see how each of the nine numbers see the world and how they take in information. So I only make one guarantee when I go in somewhere to teach, and the guarantee always is that you will leave having more compassion for other people. Hmm. And it never fails. Really? Because the reality is, if we were Lindsay or Richard, and what we saw all the time was what's wrong and what's imperfect, it's exhausting. But it's also exhausting to try to entertain yourself all the time as a seven so that you don't have to deal with any sad feelings. And it's exhausting as a two for me to always read the room in terms of who needs help, who's not doing well, who needs somebody to take care of them. It's exhausting for every number to see the way they see. And we live under the illusion that we kind of all see the same way. We don't. No. So once a church staff understands how differently we all see, then their ministry takes an enormous turn for the better in recognizing that the golden rule maybe is not such a good thing. Uh Uh-oh. Why is that? Well, my daughter, Joey, who's an eight, who does... Some Enneagram work with me now on the teaching side. She's 37. She called me maybe 18 months ago and said, you know, Mom, I've been thinking, I don't, I don't think the golden rule applies to AIDS. And I kind of sat up straight and said, really? What would make you think that? And she said, well, I treat people exactly like I want to be treated, and it seldom goes well. Huh. And the truth is that We can't live well with one another, treating others like we want to be treated. We have a responsibility in relationship to understand how they want to be treated and then treat them that way. And the Enneagram helps you do that. Absolutely. When you see someone else's. Absolutely. That's brilliant. The Enneagram's brilliant. Yeah. It is called Enneagram wisdom for a reason. Yeah. That is fascinating. Yeah, I completely get it. Like if 
you know, for me to be able to understand how my wife sees things, it just as simple as the dishes. Like I understand why it, it makes her like physically uncomfortable to try to just sit down and watch TV if the dishes are dirty. Right. I get that. Right. And so as I can see the world through her perspective, it helps me become a better husband. Right. And staffs at churches, whatever. I mean, as you, as you understand that the person makes it so much easier to, to, to serve and love them well. Sure. I just got back from teaching uh, for a long weekend in Boise, Idaho, and I had the chaplain staffs from two hospitals there. Mm-hmm. And if you think about walking into a hospital room as a chaplain, believing that the person who's sick needs the same kind of things you need or sees the same way that you see, that's just a mistake because mm-hmm. that's got there, there's a, a high percentage that you're going to be wrong. So mm-hmm. once they all learned about the nine different numbers and how they operate in the world and how they see themselves in relationship to other people, they were very taken with how it would change their ministry. Yeah. But as someone in a marriage, you, you can know the other person's number. As someone who works closely with someone, you can assume what your coworkers' numbers are if you, if you know them for a while and maybe you, you go through the process. But as a chaplain or in any other profession, or most of their interactions, excuse me, you don't know what the other person's number is when you interact with them. So how can the, the Enneagram be helpful in that situation? Well, um, one of the things that's true about the Enneagram is you, I haven't reached the bottom of what it's possible to learn about the Enneagram. So I have 55 sets of Enneagram and CDs. And I just met with Meredith this morning. We're teaching five new Enneagram and next year that I've never taught before. Huh. And I was able to pull from those CDs the ones that would help the chaplains walk into a room and have a good idea as to whether or not somebody was thinking repressed or feeling repressed or doing repressed. So you're going to look at their, you put them in the three subsets and that can be a good place to start. Right. Huh. And so you, with training, you think people can learn how to do that? Absolutely. Hmm. And you've got it doesn't to... have to be perfect, you know. If you get, if you get in the right ballpark, you're not going to hurt anybody, and it might really help. Hmm. But at least it helps you realize that they're not seeing things the way you are, right? And then you can okay. So imagine that I am chaplain, or I just as a pastor who's going in to do a hospital visit. Okay, I'm going in there as someone who is feeling repressed. Right. How do I like? Okay, I perceive this person to be thinking repressed. What is my, like, what should my brain be doing right now as I'm trying to filter how I can, you know, pastor them during the situation? Well, all your brain has to filter is there's a good chance that whoever you're going in to talk to is not feeling repressed. So you lead with your weakness. Oh, that's not, a, that, I'm not, I, that's, I'm not good in my weakness. What do, well, you lead by asking what they feel. Oof. That way you don't have to read that. You get to ask. So literally just say, how are you feeling? Well, I wouldn't start with that. You know, you could start with, hi, my name's Lou. <laughs> <laughs> and then you might go from that. So into, tell me these, these things inside of you that you want to run away from so you don't feel them. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say don't that Don't say either. it like that. It's going to require a lot of coaching for this you. Is, yeah, yeah, coach, I think you're definitely right. A lot of coaching. Yes. Lots of help I need. So let me give you an example of how you would read that. Okay. Uh, a hospital administrator told me about following she was following residents mm-hmm. as they were going in and trying to take care of patients. And um, this guy walked in, very heady guy, um, and not in touch with feelings particularly. I like him already. 
and he talked with this older man about what his prognosis was and whether or not family had come to visit and all those things. And there were two women following. And the resident left, and the administrator said to the gentleman who was sick, is there anything else that we can do for you? And he said, yes, there is something that's very important to me. And she said, okay, what is it? And he said, could you get me a shirt or a pajama top? Because I feel very uncomfortable. Hmm. So, see, the assumption is that he's sitting there with no pajama top, and there are women in his room and a doc. And what he needs to be comfortable, my guess is he's a five on the Enneagram. And what he needed to be comfortable was to feel like he was appropriately dressed before he could encounter somebody. Oh, yeah. So when you miss all those little pieces, you miss a lot in terms of making people comfortable enough that they can experience what you're trying to tell them about their health. Hmm. Interesting. So if you came in the room to talk to me, I would want you to uh, ask me about my family in order for me to be comfortable with you. So I see that your husband's been here. Um, how long have you been married? That would mm -hmm. be a good way to start with me. Then I could tell you about how I adore him and about how hard it is for me to be away from him. And then if you ask me about my children, I might even tell you that I was adopted and having children was the most important thing to me in life. And then I might tell you about my grandchildren, which is a very big part of feeling like I'm connected to something going forward because I'm not connected to anything going back because of my adoption and then in three questions you know me and I trust you and then our exchange is about what I might need if you're a doc medically or if you're a chaplain spiritually are completely different interesting which is also why when I came into your house first yeah. thing you showed me that's right was your kid or your kids, kids and, and grandkids because after you... Joe he's the first thing yeah of course we Everybody. met Joe first right that is interesting because that's who I am so if you're going to be in my home and we're going to chat. Mm -hmm. I need you to know that part of who I am. Okay, so we have some mutual friends who are eights. We're not going to point at them or anything. I'm sure they're happy to be pointed at. They love their number. <laughs> they do, and yeah, they love yeah. being the center of attention. So what, what do they need? Like if, you, if you're interacting with them in that same circumstance, what makes an eight? No chit-chat. No chit Just go right to the business? They just want the business. They want facts. They don't trust you already. They expect people to betray them. They have very few people in life that they're going to trust, and you can't earn their trust in 10 visits, much less one. Oh, wow. So maybe that's why Tony Jones is always mean to me when he's on the podcast. He I just trust listened me. to the podcast you and Tony did about <laughs> our friend Phyllis. Uh -huh. I thought it was fantastic, and he was extraordinarily <laughs> tender. Oh, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, Tony. But yeah, uh, but that makes sense. Like, they're, they're, he has different questions, or an eight would typically have different questions uh, than I would have for sure. More importantly, they have different needs. Needs, yes. Okay, let's talk about, if someone's listening to this, they've never heard of the Enneagram before. For some reason, they haven't heard me and Richard talk about it. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they wouldn't have listened to that also, but they haven't. And waiting, they were waiting to hear you and me talk about exactly, it. Exactly, that's exactly what they were doing. And now they've heard, they're interested, they want to go about figuring out what their number is. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've got some CDs about that. What I are some other ways? To. Huh? One or two. I have one or two. Or more. Or more. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do they go about it? What's the process of learning your number? There are some Enneagram books that are available. Mm -hmm. uh, my CDs are available. The Enneagram is originally an oral tradition. You know, it could be as old as 3,500 years 
old. Mm -hmm. So nothing was published until the mid-1970s. And wasn't Richard One of the first. Yeah. He was one of the first. And so what happened in all those previous years is spiritual directors would get to know you, and then they would teach you just your number. Because huh. at the end of the day, you're the only person you can do anything about. Mm-hmm. Once information was published, then it became our responsibility as teachers to teach all nine and to try to make the best of that reality. But when I'm doing an introductory workshop mm-hmm. and people come up and want to ask me questions about other numbers, I don't answer them. Because they're there to learn about themselves. They're not there to help their husband be a better husband or their boss be a better boss. Because at the end of the day, all you can do is work on you. Now, in advanced Enneagram work, once you know your number, then I'm happy to talk about other numbers. But it doesn't help you get there to talk about other people that you know. So my CDs are available, and that's all oral teaching. Mm -hmm. I would recommend two books. Richard's is certainly one, The Enneagram of Christian Perspective. Mm -hmm. And the other one is by Hurley and Dobson, and the name of it is What's My Type? Okay. Um, we've lost Enneagram folks in the last few years. Dobson has died and, uh, Don Rizzo has died. We've lost a lot of wisdom in those people, but those two books, Richard's and what's my type are really good intro mm-hmm. books. And, and Richard's book was what was my introduction to Enneagram. Yeah. And I found it to be extremely helpful, you know, but as I said earlier, I thought I was a three. Did and- you take the test? No, I just read his book. He said not to take a test. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not a fan of the tests either. I, and here's why. Because those indicators, I think, uh, are based on behavior and not motivation. Mm-hmm. And if you don't look at motivation, you don't end up with the right number. Yeah, so it seems like one of the critiques of this method of trying to figure out your number and your personality type is there obviously is self-serving biases that we all have. And so if, if I see a bunch of people say, you know, NT writes a seven – According to, yeah, NT writes a seven, Rob Bell's a seven. Uh, if I say I want to be like those two people, then of course I'm going to filter my myself through those lenses say I want to be like them. Or if my friends are a bunch of, my preacher friends are all threes, I'm thinking, oh, well, they're a three, so I'm probably a three. And so how do you how do you make sure that you don't go down that road? Because it seems like there would be a, a, an easy way if you didn't have a Richard Rohr to email with that you could find yourself trying to live into an identity that doesn't really fit you. Well, interestingly enough, threes are particularly prone to that. But I would say that I think the (laughs) most important way is your Enneagram number makes you uncomfortable, not comfortable. When you read about your number or when you hear your number taught, that's Mm -hmm. not who you want to be. That's who you know you are. Hmm. At two in the morning, you know that that's the stuff you do, that that's how you think, and that that's how you see the world. And so you begin by recognizing how you behave at home, not out in the world. I always encourage people to think about when they were 20 Mm -hmm. because at 20, you know, when I teach on a college campus, when I teach the know your number workshop, which is seven and a half hours of teaching, when I do that on a college campus, they get their number in half the time. Because they're 20. Yeah. So they think about themselves all the time and what they want to do and how they want to change the world. And then the world starts to change them. And the older they get, the farther they get from that. So I encourage people to think about when they were 20 and think about how they behave at home. And then look for what makes you uncomfortable. And with the exception of one number, 
when people hear their number taught, it's a little embarrassing and they get uncomfortable. Okay, first of all, what's the number? Eights. Eights love their number and they <laughs> think the world would be so much better if everybody was an eight. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> for reasons we may not have time to talk about, but I, when I teach Know Your Number, I start with eights. Yeah. Um, and then generally after they know their number, they're ready to leave. They're not even interested in hearing the other. But the sixes have to go last. Yeah. Because they don't want to make the wrong choice. Right. And so they want to hear. Okay, but you said earlier, it's home, not the world. That's where you need to ask the question of who you are. Because at home, but what if you're like an extrovert and you don't do good at home alone? Like, and you need to be around a bunch of people. Then you know that about yourself when you're home. Oh, that was a little Jedi mind trick you just played on me right there. Yeah, gotcha. That's one for me. Okay. Put a hashtag down. Yep. We'll make a note. Coach one, Luke zero. Okay. Um, okay. So at 20, you know, your motivation, the world hasn't changed you. And that's where you need to go back to. If you're not 20 to figure out who your, what your number is. It helps. It helps. Is, are people able to do that? Do you, do you, is it, I, I'm wondering like how easy it is for most people to identify their number. You don't seem to have the concern about that, that I do. Mm-mm. You've obviously been doing this for two decades. So I'm going to trust you to be the right one. I think if they hear it taught orally Mm -hmm. and if they hear from somebody who knows what they're doing, Mm -hmm. that with one exception, they won't have much trouble figuring out their number. Mm -mm. Okay. So if there's an, I was going to say, Heather, you've got a question because as an eight, I know you think there are important things that need to be discussed that I haven't mentioned yet. Okay. You didn't, you sent me questions like three months ago that I read then but I don't remember them. So I'm going to give you a chance. You can ask a question. If you want to have part of the conversation, go the correct way as number eight. I want you to have that ability, but you can come here and use the microphone. Really? I'm going to let you, here you go. It's showing. Yeah. Yeah. I like your eight. This is, this is for friends of the podcast. Our good friend, Wade, who's been on multiple times. This is his wife, Heather. And, uh, hi, Heather. Hey, Luke. Go ahead. Okay. Suzanne. Yeah. Hi. Hi. When I first saw the Enneagram, it was it wasn't long after grad school, and, and you know my background is marriage and family therapy, so right. I had had all this training in psychology and the DSM. I've I've learned all of those, um, the Myers Briggs and the MMPIs and all of that stuff. A friend of mine handed me a book by Helen Palmer, right, and on the cover of it was this pentagram looking diagram circle thing and they handed it to me and said here this is going to change your life and i immediately was a little alarmed by it because just the symbol the symbolism of the enneagram is a little odd why should we not be afraid of the enneagram or can you tell us just a little bit put our minds at ease about the enneagram and is there anything there that i should be afraid of especially as a as a woman of faith as a christian sure that's a great question. Um, math is not my strong suit, so um, I wouldn't have noticed the difference in how many points are on the circle either. So uh, the word Enneagram is just a Greek word, and it, it means nine points, and there are nine points on an Enneagram, so that's why they use that symbol. If I were writing a book, um, I wouldn't put the symbol on the cover most likely, because of misidentification. So having said that about the symbol, and and I would also say there's a lot of math that explains why all those lines go the way they go and all that. I didn't learn any of that. I took math eight three times at SMU, 
And I finally went to a junior college and took a philosophy course that would count. So <laughs> math is not my strong suit, and I don't care much about the math. But there are people who do, and there are books that explain all of those, all, all of the reasons for the spacing and all that. As a Christian, here's what I would say. The teaching that we have about the Enneagram is that it is the face of God. So it takes all nine numbers to make the world what it needs to be. It takes nine ways of seeing. Once you know the Enneagram well and you read the Gospels, you recognize right away that there are parables for every Enneagram number. And the way you know is because they make you so uncomfortable when you read them. So uh, one of the things that I've told Wade and that Joe knows is you're never going to preach a sermon that's going to make everybody happy. Because if it has that parable that strikes my number at the core, I'm fidgety for the whole time and pretty much wish that you hadn't brought it up. The Enneagram is not dogma and it's not doctrine. So there's really nothing to push back against once you know what it is. There's nothing to push against. And I, I don't defend it. I just say, if, if you like it and it's helpful to you, great. And if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. It's okay. I would encourage you to kind of keep the book around because I think you'll come back to it later on for reasons of not being understood. Like, Heather, you're the most misunderstood spot on the Enneagram. Female eights are the most misunderstood number on the Enneagram. And the world's better for you to inhabit it because some people have been taught about female AIDS and about all the tenderness that makes up who you are and about all the things that you fight for for Christian reasons, not for the sake of fighting. And I think ultimately Jesus is walking compassion. And ultimately I think that's the greatest gift that the Enneagram has to offer. Wow. <clears throat> Thank you. You're welcome. That's good. That's, that's a good. great question, too. Hey, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks, Coach, for joining the podcast. Anytime. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll have to do this again. Okay. I hope so. All right. Thanks. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>